He says, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And Father, we ask now that you'd help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the study of the word of God now this morning as we continue in our worship Lord, we ask that you'd help us by the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be receptive and attentive and just responsive to what the Word of God is saying to us personally and collectively this morning as an assembly of people. So, Lord, we ask, bless your Word and speak now through your Spirit's ministry, and we pray together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we may refer to it as something like a powerful move of the spirit or we might call it maybe a spiritual awakening or a spiritual revival whatever term we use what does it look like when there's a genuine work of god that is happening in someone's life or maybe amongst a group of people or maybe even far reaching to the place where it's a genuine work of god among an entire community Though I think the list and description that we find here in our passage is probably not exhaustive, I do think there are some identifying marks in this section that reveal to us what characterizes in a picturesque way what we might call a genuine work of God taking place. As we go through this passage this morning, I think we find what will be and should be happening when the Spirit of God is powerfully moving amongst us. Remember the background in Acts chapter 19, Paul has just recently returned to Ephesus for a second time. He did some ministry there for a short season when he first went there to preach the gospel. He departed and now he has returned back on his third missionary journey. In our last section, he was interacting, remember, with a group of 12 men who referred to his disciples. And it told us these 12 men were lacking in their spiritual understanding as well as lacking in spiritual power. And Paul, recognizing this, spoke to them, explained and taught to them the ways of the Lord Jesus more fully and thoroughly. And then he laid hands on them, remember, and prayed over them. And as the result of that, it tells us the Holy Spirit came upon them in great power. And they began to speak with tongues and they began to prophesy and manifest the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul prayed over them, they experienced what we might call a, a mighty baptism with the Spirit's power. And it's now likely with this small group of 12 disciples, probably together with some of the other believers who've come to Christ since the ministry in Ephesus began, 
that Paul now seeks to carry on ministering to them further, discipling them in the ways of the Lord, helping them grow and mature into a group of spiritually fruitful Christians. We read in verse 8, as Paul's ministry now continues, it says that Paul, verse 8, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly, it says, for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So as we've observed many times before, this was often Paul's custom. He once again goes into the Jewish synagogue, the gathering place where they worship, to try and help those who already had an Old Testament basis of Scripture with a a pretty good understanding of the prophecies of Messiah that God was going to send a deliverer. And he seeks to speak to the people there to help them clearly see and understand that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was once among them, was indeed the promised Messiah and Savior that God had sent to them, that he was the predicted one who their Old Testament prophecies spoke about, that God was going to send to bring deliverance, and that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed this king and ruler who was sent and the one who brings the kingdom of God. That Jesus was the one as the Lord of glory who brought the kingdom of God amongst them. And it says here in verse 8 in our text, notice, that he dedicated, it says, three months. That was longer than Paul usually would be able to last in a synagogue. But this time he got three months worth of time out of it. And he dedicated three months, it says, speaking boldly, that is, in direct and confident ways, about, it tells us, verse 8, things concerning the kingdom of God. And it says he was reasoning with them, that is explaining from scripture, spiritual truths, seeking to give a reasonable basis of why they should believe upon Jesus as the Savior and Messiah, seeking to give them understanding through explanation who the Lord Jesus was. They could grasp God's plan and what God was doing through him, as well as not just reasoning and explaining from the scriptures, but it says he also spoke boldly, verse 8, to persuade them. That's a term that speaks of to convince, to cause them to exercise faith and response towards Jesus, that they would be persuaded to believe upon him and receive him as savior and begin to follow him as the Lord, that they might receive forgiveness of sins. Because until someone believes upon Jesus Christ, there is no other way to be forgiven of sins. Until someone chooses to receive Jesus Christ, they do not experience eternal life and the opportunity to go to heaven because those things are received by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Savior sent for us. And notice as a spirit-filled minister, which Paul was, seeking to allow the Holy Spirit to be the one to guide his preaching and teaching, take note from verse 8, if you would, the primary subject matter that was being spoken about. You see it there in verse 8? The primary subject matter was about the things of the kingdom of God. That is putting people's attention on the things of the kingdom of God. Paul's primary heart in speaking to people, preaching and teaching and communicating was to put their focus on the reality of a spiritual and eternal dimension. To get their focus upon that which is eternal and spiritual, a kingdom where God rules over all, a spiritual realm where everything is serving the eternal purposes and plans of God the Father and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spoke regarding many different aspects of the kingdom principles about the kingdom, concepts that related to the kingdom of God, giving explanation to increase people's understanding about things like heaven and how to get to heaven and and what pertains to God's ways and the rulership and how the realm of the kingdom of God and the spiritual realm works and spiritual experiences. Remember all the way back in Acts chapter 1, we read that Jesus himself during his last 40 days on earth before he ascended back up into heaven to be at the right hand of his father once again, it tells us this of Jesus' last month and a half on this planet. It says Jesus was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
Jesus, the best teacher ever. Paul, a representative who was used mightily of the Spirit. Jesus sought to put people's attention upon that which was spiritual, that which was eternal, to put people's focus and thinking upon heaven, to evaluate life in regards to eternity, to help people understand more about spiritual principles and concepts of the kingdom of God, the spiritual realm, not necessarily to give people social concepts or power principles for how to live a better life or to give people interesting facts or quips, or, but to give people understanding of spiritual principles, to talk to people about the kingdom of God and what it meant to participate and be a part of it. And look, whenever a genuine work of God is happening, which is what we see here in Acts chapter 19, the focus should always be on the kingdom of God. Because when the eternal spirit of God is moving powerfully among the people of God or among people generally, it will rivet their attention on the fact that there is another kingdom beyond this present world. That this is a temporal realm, but there is a spiritual realm. There is a realm that is eternal and it will bring people's attention upon the spiritual realm in the kingdom of God. Not upon, again, all these other things, which may be interesting which may be what the rest of the world spends their time talking about or being entertained by, but aren't the things that God's people need to hear about. I don't know about you. I can get all kinds of information all week long from the internet and Google and YouTube videos and all these and and news. And when I'm together with God's people, I need to hear about the kingdom of God. I need to have spiritual understanding illuminated in my life again to put my attention on the kingdom so that I live as a citizen of heaven while I'm simultaneously living as a citizen of this world. And when Paul went into the synagogue, just like Jesus, he reasoned and persuaded with people boldly about the things of the kingdom of God. Well, the reaction shouldn't be surprising. Notice verse 9. But when some within the synagogue... It says, were hardened and did not believe what Paul was speaking about. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude. And he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And verse 10 says, this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews as well As Greeks. So here we see in verse 9 and 10 both the rejection and resistance of those who would not believe. And say they could not, it says they did not believe. And we also see, in contrast, the dedication and the fruitfulness of those who were yielding to the Spirit's work. And this is a fitting contrast because whenever a work of God is unfolding, Satan will always be at work to counteract that work of God that's starting to take place. And God's people have to learn how to adjust to that, how to persevere in the midst of that counterwork of the devil that takes place to try and thwart the work of God and how to remain faithful unto the Lord. First of all, take note with me that after three months, it says that some began, we read here in verse nine, some began to exercise their free will in rejection to what they were hearing about the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, verse 9 there in our text, that some were hardened to what Paul was speaking about, about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Some were hardened, it says, and they did not believe. You know, that term that's used there in verse 9, hardened, is a, a Greek term, sclerosis. It should sound familiar. We talk about arterial sclerosis, which is basically the hardening of the vessels that carry the blood to and from the heart. The idea there is is, is a hardening whereby there's this blockage that takes place in the blood vessels, which can lead to a fatal heart condition. It actually can destroy someone's life because of this hardening that restricts the flow of blood. And it's interesting that that's the term here used by the Holy Spirit to remind us this sclerosis. It's a spiritual picture of the heart condition that takes place when unbelief happens, when someone exercises their free will to choose not to believe when God's given them the capacity to believe. 
See, we all have a free will and we all have the capacity to choose to believe or to decide not to believe. People say, I just can't believe that. That's not biblically accurate. God calls us all to be saved by faith, by belief, by trust. It would not be fair and just of God if he's a good and righteous God if certain people could not believe, right? That's why the universal way to be saved is by believing, trusting faith. Because not everybody can walk. Some people are handicapped. Not everybody can give certain amounts of money. Not everybody can perform to the same extent religious duties or you know, acts of dedication through religious service. But the one thing everybody can do, even a thief dying on a cross in his dying breaths, is choose to believe. And here it says there were some who did not believe. They hardened their heart in refusal and denial of what they heard. And since they did not believe the word of God as they heard it, and what the Spirit of God was testifying to their hearts as they were hearing about the kingdom of God and Jesus, and they denied and resisted that truth again and again and again and again, their hearts became calloused. And they began to harden their hearts in unbelief. It produced a hard heart in a calloused way. And look, folks, I'll tell you, that is always a very dangerous place to be spiritually. When a person hardens their heart continually and will not believe what they know the Spirit of God and the Word of God is saying to them and seeking to block out the inner testimony of their conscience, notice what they also did in verse 9 there. It says, because they hardened their hearts and did not believe, they have to block out the testimony that's going on inside of their conscience that they're trying to ignore. So what did they do to counteract it? It says they spoke evil of the way. And that's what people do. Right? That's kind of the way inwardly they, they kind of silence the testimony that God is speaking to them is they begin to do things to criticize. They got to criticize what they know is true so they don't accidentally believe it. Or that they got to condemn people who believe it or mock others and make fun. And that's what was happening. They were speaking evil of, notice, the way. And we've seen this term before. The way is a title in the book of Acts used to describe early believers how they were labeled. It seems this became a description of followers of the Lord Jesus. Early Christians and the church were referred to as the way. That's interesting. Likely, maybe it's connected to what Jesus' own autobiographical statement was in John 14, 6, where Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, he says, except through me. Jesus referred to himself not as a way, But the way, the exclusive, narrow, only way to be able to have access into heaven to be with the Father. So those who believe in and follow Jesus Christ were referred to as the way. And that's very fitting because those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and follow him are on the way to heaven. So the title fits very well. This morning, if you believe upon Jesus Christ as your Savior for your sin and follow Him as the Lord of life, you are on the way to heaven. You're on your way somewhere. And and so you should live like you're on the way. In the same way, this idea of the way that we find when we put our trust in Christ through faith alone, being a Christian was also seen, understand, especially in that early culture, it was also seen as a new way, if you would, of worshiping God, a new way of having a spiritual existence. That is, it was a a way of having a relationship with God through faith in his son rather than through the law of God or religious routine or rituals. Most people believe if you do this or perform these religious requirements or follow these rituals, and Jesus was saying, no, no, no. The way to be right with God, the way to worship God is through a personal relationship in a loving way with his son, Jesus Christ not by religious routines or church attendance or certain rituals or requirements, but the way to be right with God is to know his son, to be in a relationship personally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, those who wanted to keep their religious system 
strongly despised this way, so they spoke evil about it. They were trying to discredit and mock it and resist it to turn people away. And look what Paul does when this happens. He responds very wisely to this spiritual warfare. Verse 9 tells us that when this happened, Paul just simply departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So rather than become defensive, rather than beginning to get contentious, Paul just graciously departed from their presence. It says, verse 9, he withdrew the disciples who wanted to continue to hear more and follow, and he started reasoning and teaching daily then in the school of Tyrannus. Now, what's being described here, understand, the typical rhythm in the life of the ancient uh, hot Mideastern culture of that day was normally kind of this pattern. They would begin working from around sunup, around 6 a.m., and they would work to about 11 a.m. And then typically they would cease from their work, take the lengthy break, stopping work from around 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., the hottest part of the day in a hot Mideastern climate. And during that break time from 11 to a.m. to about 4 p.m., they usually go home, they eat a meal, they take a siesta or a nap as we would refer to it. They'd spend time with family, do some low-key things. And then somewhere around 4 p.m. to about 9 p.m.-ish or so, they then return to their work when the temperature would start to drop again and they would work out the remainder of their day until it was time to go home and to go to bed. Now, we know from other places we've already seen, as in our passage here in the reading of it this morning, that Paul at times worked as a tent maker, as a part of his ministry, was somewhat bivocational as a traveling missionary and moving from location to location. Paul didn't often settle down. This is one of the longest places he ever was in Ephesus, and that was only for a few years. So Paul was continually on the move, and often he would, as a leather-working individual, he had that trade skill. He would go into a location, a community, and he began to exercise his trade, making tents to supply for his needs, to earn income when entering a new community, to provide for himself as necessary so he didn't become a burden. As a missionary, he would establish himself. He'd work as a tent maker and then also minister simultaneously. And apparently what we see Paul doing here in verse 9 is he what it says teach and reason daily in the school of Tyrannus with his disciples is apparently during the typical afternoon break time between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Paul would use that time while others rested to host teaching sessions. He probably made an arrangement or maybe even rented out this local vacant schoolroom of Tyrannus and there he would conduct Bible studies. There, during the time of the off hours, he would use this meeting room to teach people the Word of God hosting Bible studies. And it says there in verse 9 that he actually was doing this daily. That is, each day. Each day, during that break time, he spent time doing teaching sessions. And can I just say, to be honest, from evaluation, that's quite a commitment. That is quite a commitment there of teaching and studying the Word of God, both by Paul as a teacher as well as those who apparently were pretty hungry students to want to learn God's ways. That every day during their break times, instead of enjoying normal rest and leisure as most others did in the culture, they demonstrated great dedication to spiritual learning. That instead of going home and having their relaxation time, they would go to the schoolhouse there where Tyrannus' school was, pursuing greater understanding of the Word of God, wanting to learn more, wanting to increase in their understanding of the knowledge of the Scriptures and be equipped further. And it says they kept this pattern going. Verse 10 says this continued the pattern for two full years, every day. During the break session, having teaching sessions there at the school of Tyrannus. And here I think, again, we see another, if you might say, characterizing mark when a work of God is starting to happen. Another characterizing mark is this, is there's a great hunger to learn the word of God. There's a great arousing of an appetite to want to know the scriptures, to want to seek God and get to know God and His ways on a deeper level. The devotion of Christians to gather together to study the Bible is greatly increased when the Spirit of God begins to move in a powerful way. Unfortunately, 
if we were to be honest, the, the typical mindset of most believers today, if we were to be very real, is, I mean, I already go to church on Sunday mornings. And that's a commitment enough just to get there every Sunday. Right? I mean, that, if we were honest, is pretty much the general broad spectrum of where most American Christians typically are at. I mean, I'm there every Sunday morning. And the reality is here, as the Spirit of God, notice, awakens and revives souls and stirs powerfully, believers have this increased longing to want to learn more, to want to be discipled further, to seek God more regularly, to gather together more consistently. Notice, it's evidenced by people wanting to gather more and more for fellowship instead of just being consumed with worldly leisure and typical everyday activities and more relaxation we see in our text Christians making great sacrifices daily I mean that's intense there daily they would work in the morning and every day they're going having teaching sessions going back to work and not doing it just Sunday or Sunday and Wednesday but daily Gathering together, there's such a move of God's Spirit in a powerful way that Christians are just longing. They can't get enough Bible study. There's this awakening spiritually that's happened within them that's giving them this great consuming passion to be immersed in seeking God. They can't get enough of prayer and Bible study and being with one another in fellowship as Christians. And look, whenever the Spirit is at work, you can mark this. Whenever God's Spirit is at work, it will always stir up a greater spiritual appetite and a greater measure of spiritual dedication within us. Whether it's personally, whether it's among a family, whether it's among a group of people, a church, a community, that will always be a characterizing mark. And I know you're saying, come on, that's a little bit overboard and ridiculous. Look, maybe I understand we can't attend a Bible school like they were getting to here with Paul the Apostle and and have daily Bible studies like these hungry disciples, which are a great example. But surely, folks, we should be able to spend daily time in the word of God if they could do what they were doing surely we should be able to at least be spending daily time in the word of God in the morning at your lunch break in the evening before you turn on the tube or watch some movies or videos that that we could spend daily time wanting to increase in our understanding of scripture to know God better to spend time with the Lord, again, that we would evaluate our lives and say, Lord, wow, I mean, would you work by your spirit, increase my appetite for the things of God. Awaken my heart, Lord, get out the apathy and give me an increased heart for dedication that I would be willing maybe to say, Lord, I want to set these things aside because I want to seek you more. I want to be with your people more regularly and consistently. Well, look at the wonderful results in verse 10 of what they were doing over these two years, kind of this informal Bible school, if you could, operating. Look at the results, verse 10. It says, this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the result of this intense teaching and discipleship making of mature fruitful equipped believers the word of the lord jesus had spread all throughout the area of the province of asia minor there was this expansive ripple effect now surely all of asia that's not telling us here all of asia came to paul's bible school that's not what's going on here I don't think it would even be practically possible. So this wasn't all of Asia coming to Paul's Bible school to hear the word of the Lord Jesus. What is happening here is these believers who are gathering under Paul's pastoral ministry and good sound teaching of the word of God are being equipped and are being trained and edified and built up to be effective to minister and they're then departing and going to the surrounding areas and they're bringing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're leading people to Christ in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their jobs, in their schools, in their families. They're going out teaching Bible studies and and likely it seems even planning churches. Because many of the churches, we have referenced some of them in the book of Revelation and other places in Asia, Paul didn't plan, and it's probably because of what happened right here 
when they went out and they were establishing other works. Interesting, Ephesus was a city known as the gateway to Asia. Ephesus had that title. that It was known as the gateway to Asia, and Paul no doubt ministered there strategically. And that church and what Paul did there became a great hub for expansion ministry as it became a gateway for other works of God. And let me say, that is what a healthy work of God, I think, really should accomplish, a ripple effect. It should have a ripple effect where believers come together, they're soundly taught the word of God, they're strengthened spiritually, they're they're discipled and ministered to in a healthy way to become strong, fruitful believers, and then they just bring the word of the Lord everywhere they go. And they're bringing the word of the Lord back to their families and to their job places and to their schools. And they're establishing Bible studies in formal and informal ways. And you know, from one man's fruitful, faithful investment, look how the Lord was just causing the work of the Lord to spread. Paul, in the end of his life in 2 Timothy 2, would say this, The things you've heard from me, Timothy, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's replication. It's reproduction. Timothy, what you've heard from me, you then commit to others who will then be able to teach others again. Just this continual passing on of the work of the Lord. And folks, that is why I tell you one of the main reasons why we put a heavy emphasis upon sound Bible teaching in our local church here for that very reason. Because we want to see you built up and strengthened and taught well in the ways of the Lord so that you become the conduits and equipped for works of ministry to bring the word of the Lord everywhere you go and lead people to Christ and share the gospel and teach the Bible and talk to people about the ways of the Lord that you would carry those things on and bring those forth in a wonderful way. And and look, that's why too, again, it's not an illegalistic thing, I can't esteem to you enough the value of being here consistently Sunday morning. Of taking into consideration, Lord, maybe beyond Sunday morning, I should consider being there on a Wednesday evening. Because look, that's where discipleship happens. That's where training and equipping happens. That's where counseling happens. I had a pastoral friend back where we were pastoring in in Pennsylvania, uh, and I forget how we got in the conversation one time, and he said, I I conduct group counseling three times a week. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I I conduct group counseling three times a week, Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, and at our Sunday night service. He said, it's group counseling. It works fantastic. And he says, you didn't even realize you're doing the same thing. I was like, that's really profound. Yeah, group counseling. Right, Because when we come together, what happens? We hear the word of God and all these issues and problems and things we think we use in the account. I find that when I'm in the house of God, and look, I spent time on the other side of the pulpit. I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor. I found that oftentimes when I spent time being present, when the word of God was being taught, when the people of God were getting together, typically God spoke to me. And he talked to me about what I needed to hear about. And it typically was just reconfirming what I needed to hear from the Lord anyway as the word of God was taught. Oh, I want to be discipled. Well, we're discipling people every Sunday morning, every Wednesday evening, every men's Bibles that we're discipling people. And I'm not diminishing the value of personal discipleship. I, I see value in that. I try and do that on occasion. And I hope you do too. But there's a great value in here, this consistent gathering. It had a very powerful effect. As notice, God worked through it, and the word of the Lord was reaching, reaching far beyond just where they were ministering at there. Well, verse 11 tells us, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. So when a work of God was happening, notice these amazing demonstrations of God's power were accompanying and validating the teaching and the doctrine that Paul was sharing. In Ephesus, not only were usual miracles happening (laughs) that would happen through Paul the Apostle's ministry from time to time, but God, it says, verse 11, notice, not Paul, God, it says, was also, for whatever reason, performing unusual miracles, unordinary miracles. Again, 
God's power was unfolding and God, for some reason, was doing miraculous things even in ways that wouldn't be, per se, the norm. That's the idea. Unusual, the Holy Spirit tells us. Extraordinary things. God was displaying his power in unordinary ways in this particular location. And it was not the norm. It was the exception. But nonetheless, it was happening. And verse 12, I think, gives us one of the examples of what it means when he says there, even handkerchiefs. That is Paul's sweatbands, the term literally refers to, and his aprons from working, making tents, were being brought from his body and laid upon sick people. Diseases were leaving them and evil spirits were being cast out of people. So, so powerful was God's presence among this ministry and this work of God that's happening there in Ephesus. It tells us that even taking Paul's handkerchiefs, his sweaty headbands, and his work aprons and bringing them to those who were sick with diseases and demon possessed as a result of that God's power was being released through those things and people were being healed of diseases and demons were being cast out of people and look as Paul represented Christ and his powerful authority ministering there surely I believe Paul was praying for people like normal usual miracles and people got healed once in a while and Paul probably prayed as well together for deliverance of those who had evil spirits. And likely the need, I would say, if you look at the text, became so great he couldn't get to everyone personally. And in light of that, whoever came up with the idea, people started to take Paul's sweatbands. And they're stealing his aprons from his work table. And they're bringing these articles from Paul the Apostle to those who are sick with diseases and demon-possessed and they're telling them of the power of the Lord Jesus that they were seeing through the ministry that Paul was conducting and how the Lord was doing miraculous, incredible things and they were laying these articles upon people and as they did, telling them about the power of Jesus as an extension of the powerful ministry, it was triggering people's faith. And it was probably becoming just a point of contact as they heard about the power of the Lord working through Paul the Apostle and it became a point of contact in such a way where they believed for healing or deliverance. And it says here, even this, bizarre as it seems, even this God was honoring and people were getting healed of diseases and people were believing and God was, was just miraculously touching lives. And look, folks, this is not Paul creating some spiritual gimmick of sending out prayer clause with his special anointing to a mailing list and saying, and if you include your donation Amen. and put your prayer clause. I mean, the, I mean, the Bible itself says it was an unusual occasion. It was, this is no gimmick going on. This was just a rare time in an unusual way where God's power was behind accomplishing these extraordinary miracles where God was just moving. And sometimes when the power of God is strongly at work, I think we would be fair to agree that God may sometimes do some unusual things. I know I've seen him do some unusual things sometimes. But God likes to help people in need. And when people are suffering and hurting, and sometimes God will work in just a, an unusual way by his power where you kind of go, wow, I can't believe what God did there. I mean, that was, that was kind of strange. But it's not our job to understand God's ways. It's our job just to be astonished by the power of God and not try and formulize it, manipulate it, and somehow market it. No, we're to just be astonished by God's incredible power. Well, verse 13, look what goes on. It says, Then some itinerant or traveling Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So apparently there were some Jewish exorcists traveling around seeking to cast out demons, and that's certainly a helpful thing. And it tells us here that they heard of Paul's ministry and kind of tried to duplicate it. That's what's being described here for us in verse 13. Likely being jealous of God's power flowing through Paul and being just ignorant of spiritual truth, they wrongly assume that without even knowing Jesus personally, without even following Jesus as the Lord over their lives, they could just kind of use Jesus' name like a formula as a part of their incantation, like a, like a magical charm, they could just use Jesus 
to summon supernatural power, and they assumed the name of Jesus was kind of like a mystical formula. So we see them here, presumptively, though not submitted to the Lord, trying to use Jesus and Jesus' name to serve their purposes, to serve their own purposes, which is always a bad thing to do. It says, verse 13 there, they took it upon themselves. They took it upon themselves. It says, to call on the name of Lord Jesus over evil spirits, saying, look what they say, verse 13, we exercise you, demon, by the Jesus whom Paul's preaching about. So they're now demanding unclean demonic spirits. We command you to come out of this person by the Jesus who Paul is speaking about. Well, look what happens in verse 14. It says, some doing this were the seven sons of Sceva, Jewish high priest. And the evil spirit answered this demand saying, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Now that must have been awkward especially to hear from a demonic voice coming out of a person. So these seven men who do this, it says, were sons of a high-ranking religious man. It says they were sons of a chief priest. So that tells us they're familiar with religious practices. They know spiritual routines, yet they completely lacked any genuine spiritual standing any real connection to spiritual power. So when they give their demand, the evil spirit rebukes them saying, uh, Jesus, I know. And the term there for know in the Greek means to know experientially through an encounter. So what the demons are saying to these people trying to do this is, uh, we know who the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the ruler of all is, because at one time, remember, demons were angelic beings that were in the presence of the Lord Jesus and the throne of God. And when they rebelled against God with the devil, they then became evil spirits or demonic spirits. And they said, Jesus, we know who Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory. He's the one who created us. And they say, and Paul we know. Different Greek word used purposely. Paul we're acquainted with. We're familiar who this servant of God, Paul the Apostle, is that's being used by Jesus. They say, uh, but who are you? In other words, nobody in the spiritual dimension has ever heard of your resume before. Uh, you have no spiritual standing in the spiritual and the eternal realm. They say you lack that. So who do you think you are trying to command us as supernatural beings? Now, I have to say... Uh, that's a scary rebuke to hear from a demon. To have a demon rebuke you, never good, but it reflects the danger and mistake of these people who were guilty of just being in a religious lifestyle and having no spiritual connection to God in any way. But listen, folks, how much worse, not a demon, how much worse to one day hear Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, say, who are you? I never knew you. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 7, remember, said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, that's scary, you hear that again? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? We were successful in ministry. And Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Wow. Religious routines, even doing spiritual work, and Jesus says, but I never knew you. I never knew you in a relational way. You, you didn't know me personally. You knew how to pull the levers and push the buttons and say all the right things, but you never really knew me in a personal way. What a searching thing. We don't ever want to hear that from the Lord. We want to make sure that we know the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Well, watch what happens, verse 15. The evil spirit said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled away out of the house and says, naked and wounded. Notice how the demonic spirit gave this man supernatural strength supernatural strength he overcomes all seven of them and not only that 
But it says that he becomes very aggressive and violent with them, leaping on them, overpowering them, wounding them, injuring them, and sending them away disgraced and naked. What a fitting reminder for all of us of some of what happens when a demonic spirit is possessing or influencing a person's life. A person becomes very aggressive and very violent and does very harmful, evil, disgraceful things to innocent people. You know, sometimes we see some of the things going on and I have to wonder if perhaps it's not so much a mental issue but a spiritual issue that's causing people to do barbaric, cruel and evil things. That's what this demon led this man to do. Demons are real. Let's not trifle with the spiritual realm and think anyhow we can be safe outside of the authority of Jesus. Well, whenever God's power is at work, you see demonic spirits are agitated, stirred up. Verse 17 says, This became known to all who were Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So as word spread of all these things taking place, this power, notice it caused a reverence for the authority of the Lord Jesus. It says fear came upon everybody. That is, there was a healthy fear and reverence towards the authority and the awesomeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit of the Lord is moving in a powerful way, that will be another byproduct. A healthy reverence for Christ, the authority of Jesus, People will be humbly gripped with the awesomeness of the Lord. And not only that, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified, exalted, honored, lifted up. That is, people were speaking about the greatness of the Lord. All the attention was on Jesus. It doesn't say the name of Paul's ministry was being magnified. It doesn't say everybody in town was talking about how great Paul's church was in Ephesus. It says the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Everybody was talking about Jesus. Everybody was just, you know, you know, amazed with how awesome Jesus was because the Spirit, Jesus said, will always bring glory to Christ. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to glorify Jesus, to cause Jesus to be magnified and exalted and lifted up. Well, verse 18 says also that many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So as the Spirit moved powerfully, it produced people confessing their sin. You know, it's interesting. Think about it. What is he called? The, listen, Holy Spirit, which means he seeks to reveal and to convict us of things that are going on in our lives that are unholy, unwholesome. So as the Holy Spirit was moving in power, he was revealing things that were being done that should not be done, exposing that to people's conscience, their wrong practices they were engaged in, and the Holy Spirit does that. He lets us see the error of our ways. He causes us to feel a healthy guilt over our error and make us feel bad for it, make us feel sorry for it, and then prompts us to humbly admit and own up to our mistakes. It says many were coming confessing and telling their deeds. That is, they were openly saying, we have been wrong. We have been doing things that are improper in God's sight. And there was this powerful conviction and confession as they were releasing and bringing into the light what they were doing. And please take note in verse 18 as well, it doesn't seem this was just unsaved people alone. Verse 18, if I read it correct, says, many who believed... Many who believed were coming, confessing and telling their deeds. That is, even Christians who were living in compromise, Christians who were living in private and personal ways of sin in their life were being convicted by the Spirit and they were coming and saying, we want to be made right with God. What we're doing has been wrong. And we confess it, we acknowledge it, and the power of the Spirit was bringing a great confession of sin, but not just confession. Look at verse 19, also repentance. And those, it says, many who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That pictures strong repentance, not just admitting and acknowledging their sin openly, but making a clean break from it. Repentance is a change of mind about doing what's wrong and going in a wrong direction. It leads to a change in behavior where you go the opposite way. And here probably verse 19, I think, is just one example, probably of many ways people in the city were doing things that were just not right. 
There were some even who were Christians, apparently still living in compromise, practicing dark magic, reading these books, and they're admitting their error, but they're putting a clear end to it. They're making a break from it. It says they brought their books, look at it, brought their books, and they burned them in the sight of all. They did what they had to to make a clean break to be separated from it and they did not make their decisions about getting right with God based upon what was best financially. It said it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. They didn't say, well, man, these books are really valuable. They said, I don't care what it costs personally, we want to be right with God. And they did not make their determination about what it meant to get right with God based upon what would benefit them personally or what value it had monetarily. Instead, their perspective was whatever it takes to get right with God and break from this sin, we don't care what it costs, we want to do it. We want to do it. And I'll tell you folks, that's how it should be. And that's how you can tell when somebody's serious spiritually. That's how you can tell. You know, I'm sad to tell you occasions where I've had conversations with people over the years, you know, they, they get saved and, well, what should I do with all these drugs? Should I sell them and tie the money? No, flush them down the toilet. What should I do with all my pornography? Burn it. Oh, I mean, I've been working at this job, and yeah, and, and I'm, yeah, and I ended up sleeping with somebody that I'm working with, and I just, I'm, I know it's adultery, and so, but, but it's a really good job. No, you need to quit your job. One of you understand. I've been at this. Jo- do you want your marriage, or do you want a high salary? I think God can get you another job. Whatever it takes. Burn it. Get rid of it. Be radical. When the power of God's Spirit is at work, people get radical when it comes to repentance. And this is what it should be when we seek to be made right with the Lord. Look, I understand. This also indicates, apparently, even when people believe, sometimes it still takes a little time for God to rid some stuff out of their life. And we want to be gracious and let the Holy Spirit work. But when the conviction of sin comes, no more excuses. It needs to be radically dealt with. And that's why verse 20 can conclude by saying, and the word of the Lord grew and mightily prevailed. Because these responses were made to the Spirit, God's Spirit began to just expand in a powerful way the prevailing impact of the word of God, souls being saved and people being reached and the influence expanding even further and further. Look, whatever you refer to it as, again, a move of the Spirit, a spiritual awakening, a revival, I got one thing to say. Wouldn't you love to see it happen? May we stand and ask the Lord for it.